On today's episode of the Nature Photography Podcast, we'll talk once again about finding wildlife. It's so important as a wildlife photographer to know as much as you can about what it is you're going out to photograph. One easy way to find out more about wildlife in the area that you're visiting is to hire a guide. On today's show, we're going to interview a wildlife guide who works at the Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. Now, I like to schedule photography trips as often as I can to some place to photograph wildlife in that area. Just this last month, we went up to Grand Teton National Park to explore and find wildlife to observe and photograph. Now, I was familiar with the Grand Teton National Park, but I didn't know exactly where the animals could be found. So we hired a guided wildlife tour the first day of the week so we could have an expert show us where to look while we were out on our own the rest of the week. I can't recommend this strategy enough because especially when you're going out to a place that you want to photograph the animals but aren't sure exactly where to go. We were lucky enough to settle on the Teton Science Schools to be our guide and show us where to look for wildlife. What a great experience that was. Okay, on the line with us today is Kevin Taylor from the Teton Science Schools to tell us a little bit about finding wildlife in Grand Teton National Park. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? It's going well, Terry. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, this is this is fantastic that uh, we're able to hook up. Tell us a little bit about the experience with Teton Science Schools and how it's different from other guiding services in Grand Teton and Yellowstone. Mm, Terry, thanks for that. Um, so, so Teton Science Schools, so wildlife expedition of Teton Science Schools is the ecotourism branch or arm of Teton Science Schools. And Teton Science Schools is a non-for-profit organization that's been around for over 50 years. So a very long time uh, commitment to education, to uh, connection with nature and, and to conservation. And so I think one of the uh, uh, great benefits of, of being guided uh, through Teton Science Schools is that, again, we're part of this larger organization and I have access to, um, to a lot of really smart people uh, in this field of environmental education and, and, uh, and ecology. Um, and then we also, um, with having three different campuses around the valley, uh, we have um, some resources both with vehicles and with classroom spaces. So sometimes, especially on multi-day trips, when I leave them, uh, you know, if the group wants a slideshow hmm. uh, about a particular uh, area, whether it be a photography or some area of ecology, uh, we have those resources. So, so that's one of the great things. And I think with being part of this large organization of Teton Science Schools, one of the things that I and my, my coworkers take a lot of pride in is the fact that we're, um, we're not just tour guides, we're educators, we're yeah. ecologists, we're naturalists. And, Absolutely. And, um, and, and it's very consistent with the organization that we put a lot of time into professional development, uh, into just always trying to be better at what we do. Um, uh, as a, as a naturalist, I oftentimes say that, uh, uh, well, my, my dad and my grandpa used to use that expression, um, a busman's holiday, uh, which means that, uh, you know, uh, on the bus driver's day off, he goes for a drive. Well, <laughs> as a naturalist, uh, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, uh, committed to, you know, when I'm not leading programs, when I'm not leading programs in Grand Teton and, Ye and Yellowstone National Parks, I am out 
in the parks with my friends, with my family, uh, continuously, um, learning. And that's something, um, you know, and, and, and developing stories that I can share with people in the future. So that's something, you know, I really, um, you know, really take a lot of pride in. Um, I, I will say too, as part of Seatown Science Schools, we have a very strong emphasis on, uh, safety and risk management. Um, and I will say too, and Terry, you got to experience this firsthand, uh, that we have these, um, we have really comfortable vehicles, uh, that have, um, big windows and roof hatches, mm-hmm. which you can actually stand up on the seat, pop out, uh, which is great for photography for those animals that, um, you know, maybe you're just too close and you don't want to get out so mm-hmm. as not to put yourself in danger and so as not to, um, stress out those animals. Well, as I recall, we were on our tour, there was at one point where a family of moose came by and we are talking 20 feet from the van and my wife popped her head up out of the top of that thing and, and she was using her cell phone. She's not a photographer, but it was a memory that she will just treasure, you know, mm-hmm. ha- having that access and being, being able to pop up and safely, you know, she's not going to, you know, want to slide the door open or any of that kind of thing. So it was, it was, it was really cool. Yeah, neat. Well, you know, Terry, that's, you know, that sort of brings up, um, you know, another idea of, of, you know, why take a trip, you know, with wildlife expeditions at Teton Science Schools. And that is, you know, one of our big goals is to, to basically, well, our mission essentially is to inspire curiosity, engagement, and leadership through transformative place-based education. And, and I think, uh, you know, your wife had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, no doubt other experiences throughout the day, but especially with those moose, I think that was transformative. And my hope is that, you know, she and people like her go home and take that inspiration from this place and get involved um, in ecology and conservation back home. That's, that's so awesome. I I totally agree with you. And that was the case with her because (laughs) yeah, because you know, on on trips that we've, we've been married for a long time and we went on, many trips wildlife tours where i'm going by myself every morning out to go shoot by myself and i'd invite her to come but it's like man uh, after we went with the tour with you not only getting the knowledge she was also there every morning and every evening with me which has never happened before so it was like she was enthused to go find wildlife herself thanks for sharing that so now we were on one of the private tours. Is there, is that just the way the tours work? Or let's say a photographer is on their own. Could they hook up with you guys and get attached with some of the group going out and seeing what they see? Definitely. Definitely. So, so, um, so during, you know, during the pandemic, we have just been doing private trips in the interest of having participants, you know, feel more comfortable with Mm -hmm. their families or friends or, or, or their pods. Um, however, during normal times, uh, we lead private trips as well as open trips to the public. Um, but even with a non-private trip, our groups are still no more than seven people such that everybody has a window seat. So, mm-hmm. so it's still very intimate, um, uh, you know, very discussional, very interactive, um, even when there's, you know, multiple couples or, or um, multiple families in the group. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's great because you know some photographers like myself. Until now that we've inspired my wife to come with me on some of these trips, you know, I would look to if I'm going to be on my own, I want to be able to hook into a group that, you know, can go see the same things I'm looking for. Yeah. On specifically now, as when it comes to finding say moose. So the first day you took us out, first morning within 
I think 20 minutes, you showed us moose that were grazing in a field. What do you, what should a photographer look for when they're just going out to photograph moose up in Grand Teton? Well, I think a photographer really has to look at what time of year is it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I would say uh, late fall or mid fall, as, as it was the case with um, with you being here in October, uh, winter and early spring. I think those are the most predictable times mm-hmm. uh, for moose. Um, and and as we talked about. Uh, when you were here, when moose, uh, when the temperatures get in such a way that the daytime highs are, you know, say 60 or cooler, um, moose start coming out of the river bottoms, um, sometimes even well, you know, late into the day, and they're out in the open feeding on a plant called bitterbrush. And bitterbrush is a, um, you know, kind of a nondescript shrub that grows out in amongst the sagebrush. And of course that sagebrush is that evergreen, you know, wonderfully smelling plant that's mm-hmm. so dominant, you know, across this valley. But bitterbrush is kind of a lower stature plant. And it happens to be one of, if you think about what your favorite food is, <laughs> um, I would say, if you, if you could narrow it down to two, I would say moose. Um, I would say bitterbrush is probably one of their top two favorite wow. foods. Um, however, in the summertime, uh, especially during the day, it doesn't seem to be a very important part of their food source because during the day it's too warm for them to be out. They're so, mm. you know, they're one of those animals that have, if you twisted my arm and said, you know, Kevin, Hey, all these animals are well adapted to our long, cold winters and deep snow uh, and short, cool, dry summers of all these animals, which is the one that's most adapted to these long, cold winters. And I would say it's moose. Yeah. And so in the summertime, one of the biggest challenges for moose is actually staying cool. Um, so they just, especially during the day, they just can't come out into the open to feed on this plant called bitterbrush. And so, um, so that's a wonderful thing about, you know, October, November, December is the temperatures of the daytime, the daytime highs are plenty comfortable typically for them to be out feeding on this bitterbrush. However, and this is something important for photographers to, to recognize is that as the snow starts getting deeper, as we're getting into December and, and January, the snow starts getting deeper covering up that bitter brush mm-hmm. and and now it becomes harder for them to dig down to get and so so then the moose tend to move back into the river bottoms feeding on those taller shrubs like some of the willow shrubs mm-hmm. that stick up above the snow um and they're oftentimes in the river bottoms until uh we start getting into april as the snow starts melting and exposing that bitter brush again wow um and yeah and so they come back out of the river bottoms start feeding on bitter brush again until the daytime temperatures get too warm for them to be out in the open. And then they go back into the river bottoms to feed on these taller shrubs. So it's really fascinating how um, uh, sort of the sometimes, especially fall through spring, sometimes the predictability of, um, of the movement and the habitat use of moose. Is, is based on their obviously looking for food and the temperatures outside. Exactly. Yeah. I would say, yeah, I would say if there's two big factors, I would say it's, Temperature and snow, uh, snow depth, uh, combined with um, you know food availability and, and how how the uh, snow depth uh, relates to that. So one of the things that was a real takeaway for us was, and, and like this conversation was, finding the food source is so important because that animal will probably be back there for that food source. And and during our trip, you took us to a place where there were hawthorn berries 
And that was a food source for the black bears and obviously other bears too. But tell us a little bit about how the hawthorn berry is such an important food source for the black bears in October and the late fall. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's one of those, one of those plants that, um, you know, I, in this Valley, you know, in, in Jackson hole Valley, you know, in, in the, you know, all of Grand Teton National Park and the surrounding area, um, Hawthorns are not necessarily terribly widespread. Um, and so, um, so the nice thing about it when it's a good Hawthorne berry year is, um, it's pretty predictable that mm-hmm. when they become ripe in the late fall, uh, bears are going to be on them, especially, especially black bears. Um, there's several different berry producing shrubs, um, that start producing fruits in late July. Um, and, and of course the famous huckleberry is, uh, is certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. Huckleberries get a lot more. Um, press uh, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, compared to hawthorn berries, um, but but after you know after the um, the huckleberries and other um, some some members of the rose family like the choke cherries and the service berries, once they uh, have produced their fruits and have been eaten or have dried up and fallen off, it's the hawthorn berries that stay on later mm-hmm. um, into late. Um, September and even early October, and this year, this year was a particularly good good year for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, you know, in general, berries, uh, certain berry species or, or or certain species of plants that produce berries um, don't necessarily produce a lot of fruit every year. Mm-hmm. You know, huckleberry years uh, or or good huckleberry years don't occur every year. Right. Um, uh, service berry, you know, don't produce a lot of fruits every year. But hawthorn of of all of the um, Berry producing plants, I would say. I would say hawthorn is is tends to be the most predictable, predictably abundant every year. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, late September, early October, what a critical time mm-hmm. for um for that food source to be available for bears as they're getting ready for hibernation. And uh and it, you know sometimes people ask me, well, gosh, um you know how do these animals um put on those. Uh, you know, those 28,000 calories per day that they need, you know, during that time of year as they're putting on fat for the winter. How do they get that through berries? Well, you know, we would bulk up too if we ate 15 to 20 gallons of berries a day, you know, (laughs) and that uh, that amount of food is available uh, to them through some of these berry-producing shrubs, including the hawthorn. Wow. Now, how many hours a day in, say, late October when we're getting close to So, first off, Bears hibernate in that area, what, around November, December, something like that? Yeah, you know, the the black bears tend to go into hibernation in late October, early November, and then the grizzly bears seem to stay out for an extra month or so. Okay. So on the uh, for the black bears, for instance, as they're looking for these berries to bulk up, how much during the day, how much during a, a 24-hour period are they out feeding? You know... My sense uh, is that, um, you know, from my reading, from my observation, is it's not unusual for them to be, you know, feeding for, you know, 15 to even 20 hours a day. Wow. Um, you know, they, you know, they're, you think about it, their life depends on it. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because during that five or six month hibernation, they're not eating or drinking anything. So they have to put on, you know, an adult bear has to put on eight to 10 inches of of fat on their back because that's what they're going to be um, living on. Um, and towards the end, it's, it's pretty interesting. Towards the end 
of that period just before going into hibernation. They'll continue to feed, but but you can just tell they're just getting sleepy. They're moving more slowly. Maybe they're taking more um, cat naps or bear naps Mm -hmm. (laughs) in between feeding periods. After the break, we'll talk a little bit more with Kevin from Teton Science Schools. As a professional photographer, there's one tool that I use just about every day. And no, it's not my camera. It's my computer. More specifically, Adobe Lightroom. I've been using Lightroom from the very beginning since it was introduced back in 2007. I've taught many photographers how to use Lightroom in my hands-on classes, as well as through online training. I feel this program is the best available for organizing my photographs so I can find a certain image among thousands that I've shot over the years. I especially like it for processing my raw photographic files. While many of my final images get some sort of treatment in Photoshop, all of my images are processed through Adobe Lightroom. All of them. My goal is to do as much image processing as I can in Lightroom first. This makes my workflow go so much faster. One of the things that makes my workflow faster are the preset brushes. I've created several myself that are built specifically for wildlife and nature photography. These brushes are easy to load, easy to use, and make developing your images faster and more creative. For listeners of this podcast, I'm offering a special collection of nature photography Lightroom preset brushes. You can use these to improve your wildlife photography and your landscape work. When you download my Lightroom brushes, you will get exclusive access to instructional videos to learn how each and every brush works and when to use them. Find out more by visiting my website, imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T dot com. Click on the podcast page and you can order them right there. We're back with Kevin Taylor from the Teton Science Schools. Also on our tour, you showed us where beavers were making dams and lodges in some of the ponds. We went back in the evenings when they were more active and spent a fair amount of time photographing them. You mentioned that beavers were considered a keystone species. What exactly does that mean, keystone species? Yeah, so, so ecologists use that expression, keystone species, for beavers. Uh, you know, what I find, um, and, and I've had, you know, I've been guiding now uh, in Grand Teton and Yellowstone for 18 years, and so I have a little bit of... Um, uh, data uh, collection mm-hmm. on this fact. Uh, but, you know, um, what I find is that almost all participants know that beavers build dams, uh, but very few actually realize why. Um, a lot of people think that they live in the dams, but but really what they're doing is they're actually building dams. Um, they're flooding that little shallow creek, uh, deepening the water in such a way that that way they're creating all this wetland that creates um, food for them. And that way they don't have to get out of the water or they don't have to go far from water to get food. Hmm. Um, Because when a beaver gets out of the water, they are like a fish out of water. They're very susceptible to predators like Hmm. bears or mountain lions or wolves, you know, you name it. Um, But by flooding their habitat, they're they're basically in a safer environment as a result because they can swim better and faster than, than those predators. And so they build a dam, they put a lodge right out in the middle of the the um the pond almost like a castle with a moat around it mm-hmm. um and so um and so they they do it for safety they do it for selfish reasons um and 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 they do it to to create great great um food habitat for them however as a result they basically enlarge these wetlands making these incredible wetlands 
for um, for all these other animals that end up end up benefiting. So I think beavers do it for selfish reasons, mm-hmm. but as a result, they build this incredible habitat for uh, insects. Mm-hmm. Uh, which of course, you know, if you got a lot of insects, of course you've got a lot of fish, right? Right. And uh, and um, and uh, if you've got a lot of fish, you know, sometimes otters move in. In fact, in some of those beaver ponds that I showed you when you were here, uh, I actually just saw some otters in those ponds just a few days ago. Oh, wow. um, and uh, yeah, and and then of course this um, beaver, these beaver ponds create great habitat for nesting neotropical migrant birds like warblers and vireos and of course ducks love that habitat and geese do sure. and, and of course <laughs> of course when you look at a beaver pond area or a network of beaver ponds you're always thinking moose right they create right. this incredible habitat for moose and oh don't forget about um great blue herons you know who like to catch fish and <laughs> and uh, of course bears love that habitat and elk and deer so the list goes on basically a keystone species is a species like a beaver that that benefit a lot of other animals. Right. So in this situation, had a beaver not put that dam there, so many other animals would have been affected. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They, they, so many other animals would not have benefited from the yeah. extent of that wetland. That's so cool. Well, it was great fun to, to be able to photograph them because it was, uh, uh, it was interesting to me. We had lots of time with them. The light was great, and they're very active. You know, they're swimming from place to place, maybe doing a little bit of grooming, and they're, uh, you know, chewing on wood, and and that's you know that's what you're looking for activity, not just an animal sitting there. At least from a photography standpoint. And they're and they're pretty as you as you were reminded. Uh, they're pretty tolerant of people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and and it's one of those things that. Um, well, one big recommendation that I always uh, uh, encourage photographers uh, with is to get to know the animal, get to know the subjects, because because um, one of the fascinating things that I do, you know, with studying animal behavior, is that every animal has its own has its own personal space, it has its own um, personal bubble, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and and different animals have different levels of tolerance to to us, mm-hmm. and so um, beavers beavers are pretty tolerant, of course, you know. You know, I always encourage folks, and and uh, and and most photographers are very good at this too, um, uh, because they care about the subjects that they're that they're um, photographing. But um, but we never want to watch the animals at the cost of stressing them out, right? right? Um, and so, getting to know that tolerance level, getting to know that personal space of these animals is is really important. Yeah, that's a that is great advice, and that actually brings me to my next subject, which when we were on our tour, you also showed us grizzly bears, which I thought was never going to happen, but you found, and in fact, you found us the most famous grizzly bear of all, number three ninety nine, and her cubs, and uh, was a fantastic experience. But for the people that don't know, why is three ninety nine famous? And you know, she's obviously a very popular bear in the in that area. So what makes her famous? Well, you should know um, uh, that that as soon as you mentioned uh, Grizzly 399, I have this big grin on my face. <laughs> she, <laughs> she just makes me smile. Um, so, so if you were to Google 399, you, you don't have to say Grizzly. You don't have to say Grand Teton National Park. <laughs> if you just Google 399, you get this unbelievable list of, of information about this very, very – a famous grizzly bear. Um, she has her own Facebook 
uh, uh, Twitter and an Instagram account. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, it's, uh, apparently I'm sure there are some people who, who know, but, but it's, it's kind of under wraps as to who, uh, who, ke- you know, who, uh, who, uh, manages those. Right. Um, but she was, um, so she was born in 1996. Um, so if you do some quick math there, you'll see that she's, she's 24 years old mm-hmm. and, um, it's not unheard of for a grizzly bear to get into their twenties. Um, but that's an old bear. You know, when, when they're in their 20s, that's, that's an old bear. Right. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges that grizzly bears have uh, is, is um, uh, tough interactions with people. And, uh, and so, you know, um, uh, you know, a lot of bears don't make it into their 20s uh, in part because of um, possibly getting hit by cars, right. uh, possibly um, getting shot by hunters sometimes uh, in, in close encounters, that kind of thing. Um, but she... Um, I think one of the reasons why she is so famous and that she is so visible and have been and has been photographed and videoed by so many people is that she's very tolerant of roads. Mm-hmm. Now, talking about that um, that buffer, you know, typically grizzly bears need a lot more space than black bears, and, and actually, three ninety nine, as visible as she can be, um, she does need a lot more space than than um, you know than black bears. Um, however some of the habitat that she spends time in is very open country. So, you know, we can watch her from a hundred yards or 200 yards and 300 yards and get really nice looks at her because she's uh, feeding, she's foraging in, in open country where mm-hmm. we can see her and her cubs really well. Um, so that, that really um, is helpful. And, and she has learned um, talking about her being on the roadside. And, and by the way, with 399 or any other bear, that you see along a roadside, don't ever think that that bear is any less wild mm-hmm. than bears in the deepest, darkest wilderness. Um, and the reason why I say that is because 399 is a very wild bear. It just so happens that she has learned that if she raises her cubs along roadside, that a pack of wolves or a mountain lion that could potentially prey on her cubs is much less likely to be as tolerant of people in roads as she is. Yeah. Plus, um, bears uh, have this tendency to sometimes, um, male bears sometimes will kill cubs of female bears. Um, and so, um, so a big boar grizzly that could potentially threaten her cubs is much less likely to be as tolerant as she is mm-hmm. of roads and people. Wow, so um, so it's, a, it's a protective, um, you know, for her staying uh, spending time along roads is a way of protecting herself and her cubs. Wow, it's a defense. She's learned that as a defense. Now, yeah. I, a male grizzly bear w- killing cubs. I mean, why why would a male grizzly bear kill cubs? And couldn't it be his own cubs that he'd be killing if that was the case? I mean, is it for hunger? What's what's the deal there? Okay, I'm glad you asked. So, so. In addition to 399 and, and some other bears with cubs spending time alone roads, um, you know, is to protect their cubs. But well, another strategy that 399 and other female bears will use is that they will try to breed with several of the big males, the male grizzlies, in the area in the interest of the males knowing that they've bred with her. Hmm. So, so, so the males can't do a paternity test. They don't know whose cubs are whose, but they know which females they've bred with. Mm-hmm. So if she breeds with many of the dominant males in the area, those males are not going to mess with her cubs, uh, knowing 
that they could potentially, those cubs could potentially be uh, his, uh, sure. could be that male. Wow. And, and the idea, and the reason why the male will kill the cub potentially is that way then that will send the female back into estrus so that they can breed with her so they'll, oh. so that she'll have uh, the male cubs. And, and the breeding season for bears is May and June. So, so, you know, killing cubs during that time of year, you know, a female will go, you know, right back into estrus oh. uh, during that time. If, um, if cubs are killed during a different time of year, uh, that will then uh, have that female come back into estrus the following spring. Because remember, you know, grizzly bears, uh, cubs stay with their moms for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And so, which is a long time yeah. in the mammal world outside of humans, you know, two and a half years. And so, um, and so, uh, you know, males oftentimes don't want to, um, to wait to breed with a female every third, you know, every third year. So, sure. so they will, um, they will oftentimes, you know, potentially, uh, uh, try to kill the cubs of females that they haven't bred with. Uh, and by the way, um, we haven't mentioned that 399 came out of the den last spring in May with four cubs. <laughs> you <laughs> this know, old bear. Two, you know, yeah, exactly, exactly. What, you know, one, in, one or two cubs are, you know, is very common. Uh, three means that she's in great shape and she's a great mom. Four means that she is an unbelievable mom. And the fact that, you know, you saw all four cubs in October, um, you know, that means if she's kept all four of those cubs alive, remember, the males aren't involved in raising those cubs at all. It's just her wow. keeping those cubs alive. And that's pretty, uh, pretty darn impressive. Mm. Now, when hibernation begins for her, she needs to go uh, dig a den. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. They, um, they uh, typically dig their den. You know, um, uh, unlike black bears, grizzlies, Grizzlies are much better diggers than black bears. Mm -hmm. And so they will um, uh, almost always dig their own dens. And what's interesting is they will dig their dens in the same area every year, but, but oftentimes use different – it's been found by, by researchers in Grand Teton National Park that, that they will oftentimes use a different hole. They'll actually dig a different hole every year, <laughs> um, but in the same vicinity. So, so um, 399 is known – she was actually born up um, uh, along Pilgrim Creek, and uh, and she dens up there as well. Wow. Uh, but she seems to dig a different den every year, and you think, well, why? You know, I mean, that seems like a, a lot of extra energy, yeah. um, especially since you think about her den. Her den this year's got to be kind of big because <laughs> she's got <laughs> she's got herself plus four um, good sized uh, cubs. You know, eight month yeah, eight month old cubs, right, or nine month old cubs. Uh, so they're going to take up a lot of space. Um, but but they seem to do it, and one pretty good hypothesis for why they dig a new den is because maybe they don't want to lay in last year's parasites. Maybe they don't mm. want to lay in last year's uh, you know fleas or ticks or mm -hmm. mites or, or whatever. Yeah, be like a nice clean motel room, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> change, change the bedding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, so you know when we were driving around on our own, we we after we took our tour, we saw mule deer, pronghorn, moose again, uh, but we did see elk, but they were skittish. They were they were not near the roadside. They were a long ways off. What can you tell us about finding elk in Grand Teton area? Is there a good time, a bad time? And tell us a little bit about that. Okay, okay. Well, earlier in the discussion, we talked about personal space and personal bubble. Elk is definitely one of those animals. Um, in Grand Teton National Park that needs more space mm -hmm. than, um, than other animals. You know, we're much more likely to watch elk 
you know, if they're fairly close, like if they're within a hundred yards, we're oftentimes watching them through the roof hatches because we know, even though we, they know in the vehicle we're human, but oftentimes the, the vehicle serves as a blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if we get out of the vehicle, you know, all of a sudden we're, you know, five different individuals maybe spread out a little bit and they're not as comfortable with us and they'll, they'll take off. Um, so, so it's interesting how, um, they have a, 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 you know, they, they need more personal space, you know, than, you know, than moose or pronghorn or, or, or mule deer. Um, and, and I can't help but think that part of that has to do, well, you know, with these animals, there's oftentimes the nature and the nurture factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think with elk, uh, there's certainly a nurture factor because elk are hunted um, more than any big mammal in Northwest Wyoming. And mm-hmm. so um, no doubt elk, much more so than the other animals you mentioned, elk are looking at us as predators. Sure. And, uh, and so they definitely realize they, they need more space with us. Yeah. Um, but, but as far as, as far as, you know, specifically looking for elk and where to look for them, um, you know, in the fall, I would say in the fall, you know, in, in, uh, September, October, especially during the, the, during the hunting season, I would say that, that elk, um, it, you know, if you don't see elk in the first, hour of daylight you may not see him again till the evening mm-hmm. um so that can be a little challenging of course for um for light sure. you know with with for photographers you know um so so that's definitely a, a consideration however in another you know in another um oh three to four weeks um as we get into uh, you know mid to late november elk are starting are going to be starting to move to their winter areas and a lot of that movement is uh, some of it's based on temperature and day length, but a lot of it is, is depending on snowfall. Hmm. Uh, as the snow begins to pile up in the higher country, that pushes them down to the lower elevations where there's less snow. Mm-hmm. Um, we've all walked in deep snow before. We know how uh, how much energy yeah. that takes, and and so elk leave the high country to come down to the lower elevations where there's less snow. Wow. And so winter photography of elk is outstanding. Uh-huh. Um, they're much more you know, they're saving their energy a lot, a lot more. They're more tolerant of people. They still, you know, they still need their space and we still need to give them that space. Um, but they're much more um, tolerant of, uh, of people. And of course we have this unique scenario with the national elk refuge where, um, thousands of elk, uh, overwinter. Uh, and, uh, and so there's a lot of opportunity for some, um, some really great pictures of herds, large herds of elk wintering. Now, is that something, now I've seen the, the signs for that coming out of the, the town. Is that something where you can, uh, can be part of a tour that go get in a little closer or uh, in that refuge in, in that time of year? Yes, definitely. Well, so, so you know, part of the national um, refuge system uh, is that the, the first priority is, is wildlife and, and providing habitat and, and, um, and, uh, um, uh, refuge, uh, if you will, for them. Um, and then, and then wildlife watching, um, is, is, you know, comes in after that. Uh, um, however, there's definitely opportunities to, to view those elk, um, sometimes from a distance. Um, sometimes we get lucky and we're up close. There's, um, on the national elk refuge, there's a, a road on the backside of the refuge, mm. a dirt road that especially in the early morning, the elk tend to be more spread out and sometimes not that far um, from that dirt road. So that's mm. a good place to look. Wow. The other thing too, is that there is a there is a, a partner concessionaire uh, who leads a, a partner with the National Elk Refuge that leads 
um, horse-drawn sleigh rides <laughs> in amongst the elk. And over the last, you know, uh, many decades, the elk have gotten quite accustomed oh. to the horses and the ho- horse-drawn sleighs, and they don't they don't treat that as a as a threat. And so they let those um, horse-drawn sleighs get surprisingly close oh, to uh, wow. to the elk. And uh, yeah, photographers get some unbelievable uh, oh. opportunities to photograph elk. Oh, that is a great find. That that yes. that's awesome. Yeah. Hey, speaking of, of winter, you know, we were there in the fall, but obviously you guys do tours all year long. So what, what could, what could a visitor expect to find in, in winter and spring and summer, obviously those, the other three. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, winter is oftentimes kind of a sleeper as far as seasons. Um, when people think of Jackson hole in the winter, they think of skiing, you know, mm-hmm. um, but there's so um, much additional uh, things to do here, including um, wildlife watching and photography. Um, uh, and that's a little counterintuitive to folks because, again, people aren't thinking national parks in the in the dead of winter. Right. <laughs> but really around here, it's really the life of winter uh, rather than the dead of winter. Um, wildlife watching in the wintertime is oftentimes as good or better than summer. And, and one of the big reasons is the temperature thing. Remember, these animals are so well adapted mm-hmm. to to winter summertime can be stressful. And, uh, well, for example, sometimes I'll have people who necessarily aren't in my group who will come up to me in the summertime and say, uh, you know, well, Kevin, um, or or they they don't necessarily know my name, but they see I'm a guide, but they'll say, Hey, you know, um, you know, I'm just not seeing, uh, animals much. Um, and I'll ask them, I'll say, well, what time are you getting out in the morning? And they'll, they'll say, well, Hey, we're getting out at nine o'clock every morning and we're out till 5 p.m. every single day, you know? And, uh, and, and what I'll tell them is actually <laughs> get out there at six and stay out till, till eight or nine or whatever. Right. Um, but you know, those, those, uh, in the, in the summertime, early mornings and late evenings are really key. But in the wintertime, it's much more, um, uh, getting up, uh, and how late you have to stay out is much more civil sure. because there's really no such thing as the heat of the day. Yeah. You know, animals don't get heat stressed if it doesn't get above freezing all day, you know? Um, and then, and then think about, um, you know, some of the habitats that we saw moose in, uh, you know, when you were here, the leaves were, um, many of the leaves were still on the shrubs sure. and the, and the trees. Uh, and that's, you know, a moose, uh, you know, an 800 pound female moose or a, 12 or 1300 pound bull can hide surprisingly well in the bushes when there's leaves on the trees, but they can't hide quite as well when the leaves (laughs) have fallen off, you know? Uh, And, and then, and then the other, um, the other big factor too, is that a lot of the wildlife in the wintertime is much more concentrated because they're, they've made their way, as I, as I mentioned before, they've made their way out of the high country where there's deep snow and they're down at the lower elevations. Um, and they're, they're much less concentrated. So we actually don't have to drive anywhere near as far mm. in the wintertime because the animals are much more concentrated on their wintering ground. Wow. That is such good. The other thing that photographers need to know is that the snow on the ground will act as a great reflector for the light that's going to bounce light up into the animals and make your pictures that much better. So winter sounds like a, a, a terrific option to go visit up there. Great. You know, absolutely. And, and it makes for an interesting challenge for photographers too, because, because even though there's a lot of light, as you know, sometimes there's too much light Mm -hmm. and you have to, you know, get, you know, you have to know your camera and make those, uh, you know, proper adjustments, but, um, but it is a great uh, photography challenge for sure. Yeah. I like that. So I really appreciate you coming on with us, but before we go, tell us a little bit about where 
people can find out about the Teton Science Schools, whether they want to book a tour or a class, or how do they do that? Well, thank you. Um, thanks so much for, for asking about that. Um, it's been a pleasure, Terry, to talk with you um, about about this place and about what I do. Um, and hopefully you can tell I'm very passionate about it. Um, so what folks can do is, um, is they can um, find more information about our specific trips and book a trip online at www.wildlifeexpeditions.org. Um, so that's, if you remember, Wildlife Expeditions is the ecotourism branch of Teton Science School. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or they could call at 307-733-2623. That's 307-733-2623. And then, and then um, you know, you know, definitely um, take a look at um, TripAdvisor. You know, TripAdvisor is oftentimes a, a, a great um, sort of more objective way of getting, um, you know, feedback and, 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 and get, you know, reading about comments that mm-hmm. participants, past participants have, have had on trips. Um, you know, and TripAdvisor is oftentimes so much more um, uh, objective, you know, than a, than a website. Oh, yeah. And I'll put all this stuff in the show notes so you can just, they can go to the main page, scroll down and get all this info right there so they can link right to it. All right. Well, thank you again for speaking with us. Really, really appreciate it. My pleasure, Terry. Thanks. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Well, that was Kevin Taylor from the Teton Science Schools giving us some great advice on finding wildlife in the Grand Teton National Park area. Look for all their contact info in the show notes and book your own guided trip to photograph wildlife next time you're in the Grand Teton area. Until next time, this is your host, Terry Vanderheiden with the Nature Photography Podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely into photography. Coincidentally, so am I. I'm Terry Vanderheiden, full-time professional photographer. Not only do I create photographs for a living, I do photography just for fun. In my spare time, I also teach photography classes and workshops. If you'd like to find out more about what I offer, check out my website at imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T.com. You can also find some videos I've created over on YouTube. Just search for Terry Vanderheiden or search for uh, how to use a monopod and you can find me that way. Feel free to email me if you have any questions on the topics I cover in this podcast or suggestions on how I can improve it. If you like this podcast, please give it a star rating and maybe even a quick review so others can find it easier. It would be great if you could share this podcast with other friends who might have an interest in photography. I'd really appreciate it. And thanks again for listening.